Hello. Hello. I am really excited to be back doing this. Me too, and I'm excited to not drink this drink. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to like it. Okay, well, I'm very scared now because I have no idea what's in it. I'm going to tell you. So we're doing the Rock and Rolla. I like the name. So it's got a one and a half ounces of bourbon, an ounce of apple juice, three quarter ounce lemon juice, a half ounce of maple syrup, quarter ounce allspice dram, two dashes of Ang Angostura bitters, and then garnished with some ground nutmeg, which I did not do because I knew you wouldn't. No, I probably would like the nutmeg. Do you want to put nutmeg? Sprinkled on the top? Yeah, why not? That's the weirdest thing I've ever... <laughs> Okay, we do not have put nutmeg on it. No, I mean, I would do it. I just totally thought you would not be into it. I am thinking that these ingredients sound kind of good to me. I'm not crazy about the maple syrup, but um, I'm sure you didn't put as much as it called for in it. I didn't. Should we do the nutmeg? Yeah. Pause for nutmeg. <laughs> Child, go bring us nutmeg. Okay, so we got the nutmeg. Got so the let's, nutmeg. Let's try it. All right. We have to talk about our glassware, too. It tastes lemony to me. I don't find it appalling. I don't find it appalling either. I thought it was going to be very apple-y, and I'm not a big apple person. I have a back of water. <laughs> it's it's apple-y. I'm not an unfan of apple, but I'm not a mega fan of apple. But it's fine. I like it. So talk about the glasses. Okay, so I may have mentioned that daughter number one, or child number one, collects college sweatshirts. But they can't just be any college sweatshirt. It has to come from Goodwill. So we do these Goodwill excursions and we'll drive to the local big town in our area and go to all the Goodwills and all the little suburbs around. So on Labor Day, Goodwill has a special where they do half off of everything. So we went probably to eight Goodwills that day. And husband's sole purpose was to get sweatshirts for child. Child's sole purpose was to get cool, funky retro clothes because that's what they wear, both of them. And my sole purpose was to look for crystal and glassware. <laughs> so I came home with an exorbitant amount of crystal and glassware. I found a beautiful Waterford bowl for $2.50. Oh, wow. Yes, gorgeous. And these, these glasses were some of my glassware finds. These are um, hand-blown glasses, I'm assuming from Mexico because of the style, but they're kind of a turquoisey, tealy color, and I check to see if they were hand blown to look for the punk punk mm -hmm. and thing on the bottom and i was just noticing mine is not level it wobbles back and forth it certainly does it. so mine's good mine's nice oh it got a little wobble yeah, the other way that just shows the authenticity of the hand blownness yes they're very cool i like i them. like them a lot. they have a stem on them mm -hmm. um but they're like a goblet kind of mm -hmm. yeah it'd be a, i would describe it as a goblet but it's just a really pretty um color and shape so I thought they were unique so I think I have six of these there were some that I could only get two or three. Oh, I did find you know that pattern in the 60s and 70s that was the leaf and it was a frosted glass and then it had the leaves yes painted in either gold or silver and then it was off center yes so my mom had the gold ones but we just had like iced tea glasses so I found three coupes and with silver and I bought all three of them was so excited made it all the way home they stayed in the back of my car for about three days because I didn't have time to empty everything out set them down on the notorious tile which you all have seen if you look at the Facebook page <laughs> the notorious tile in my kitchen clunk it went over and cracked oh no it survived since the 60s five minutes inside my house and it was dead 
That's so sad. It's very sad. I'm distraught. <laughs> so who's telling our story first? I got my, do you want okay. me to do yeah, mine? Go for it. Okay. So I'm going to talk about the payola scandal. Ooh. So the term payola is a contraction of the words pay and victrola. And it's all we, also otherwise known as pay to play. Okay. So it's an illegal practice that record companies have done to pay money for the playing of records. So they oh. would pay the radio station or the radio host money in exchange for them, the DJ, playing, playing their, their records. Record. Yeah. But this is money under the table that's on top of just the salary. Yeah. Yeah. So it the DJ is employed by the radio station, but the record companies want to promote their artist would come in and say, I'll pay you X amount of money for X amount of plays. So quasi bribery. Yes. Nice. So this made us, this made any particular record or um, song appear to be really popular when maybe it wouldn't, wasn't mm -hmm. actually. Um, it would also make people backed by big record labels get more airplay. Definitely. And it gave um, particular artists more exposure than they would have ordinarily gotten. And it also like bumped them up the charts. Yeah. Because they were getting all these plays, but were they really? Yeah. Well, yeah. You tend to like what you hear often. Yeah. Although sometimes they play it too much. Yeah, that's true. There's a song out now that I'm just like, every time it comes on, I change stations. Like, I've heard it too many times. <laughs> I know. So in 1950, there were approximately 250 disc jockeys in the United States, but by 1957, it had grown to over 5,000. Wow. So this was partially due to the amount of new records that were being produced by major record labels as well as indie labels. So, And the explosion of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So disc jockey at this time was responsible. They were the ones that were going through the albums and deciding what to play. So oh. if they liked something, they would put it in heavier rotation. Uh -huh. it, it, nobody was really telling them, here's, here's what we're doing. Here's what you should be playing. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Because that would be very, you're a very influential person. Yeah. yeah, very. So the DJs gained a lot of clout with the listeners, which were mostly young people. Um, Time Magazine called DJs the poobas of musical fashion and pillars of U.S. low and middle brow culture. Ooh, that's a fancy name. Yeah. Um, because of their status, the DJs um, started uh, getting flat rate deals from record labels and distributors. So, like, a typical deal would have been $50 a week per record to that would ensure a certain number of plays. Anytime there's something like that, people figure out how to bribe them yeah. or make money off of it. And that yeah. kind of is sad because this should be pure. It, and it was for a brief period of time. Yeah. Sad. Um, more influential DJs got percentages um, of grosses for concerts. They were... So more influential DJs got percentages of grosses for local concerts. They were given trips. They got swag. They got free records by the box full. They so, they got so many records. Some of these super influential DJs opened their own record stores. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So one DJ from Cleveland, Joe Finan, later described this time as it was a blur of booze, broads, and bribes. <laughs> I like it. 
Some DJs and critics like Lester Bangs came out against the practice of payola, but you know, the people that were involved in it were the majority and you know, they were just happy to take the money. They were just like, they would pay, they would literally just be playing whatever they were told to play that they were getting paid to play. Right. Um, Lester Bangs, who was one of the critics, as I mentioned, he said, I can remember when most rock critics held the record companies and that in contempt and just went and wrote what they wanted, where now it seems like it is really the opposite, that most people writing about the music are pretty much in the pocket of the record companies. It's not even a question of payola. You don't have to give them payola. It's really just a question of trendies. Like, well, what am I expected to like this week? And what's the proper attitude about it? And then it's disgusting because it's just one more example of people not thinking for themselves. And these are the opinion makers not thinking for themselves. Right. So the opinion makers are not making their own opinions. They're being told what yeah. to like. Yeah. So the record companies all of a sudden now are the opinion makers. Right. The ones who are making the money from the opinion mm-hmm. are make setting the opinion. Yeah. That is really manipulative and sad. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very common in everything still. I think so. So Paola um, has been around as long as the record business has been happening, but it didn't really come to light until the 50s and 60s. So as Paola escalated, Variety and Billboard did lengthy features calling for reform and government intervention. Billboard wrote, the the cancer of Paola cannot be pinned on rock and roll. So there was also a fight between ASCAP, which is like one of the Um, songwriting associations they represented the older style of music and then BMI which was another songwriting association they were more into the rock and roll artists so by the mid 50s the BMI releases outnumbered ASCAPs by two to one and then ASCAP accused BMI of promoting the payola I think that I've heard something akin to this from our podcast that we've discussed before that we listened to um the cocaine and rhinestones. Yeah. He's talked about in the country music industry. So it was all of the different genres. Yes, it was. So it wasn't until the TV quiz show scandals in 1958 that the government decided to get involved. Um, with the threat of losing their FCC licenses, some radio stations took the precaution of firing DJs who had put them at risk. Ooh. In November of 1959, before the U.S. House Oversight Committee, 335 disc jockeys from around the country admitted to receiving over $263,000 in quote-unquote consulting fees. Oh my. But that amount of money was really just like the tip of the iceberg. And that is a massive amount of money in those days. Yeah. And if that's the tip. So this one particular DJ in Chicago... He confessed that he had once taken $22,000 to play a single record. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And this is in the 50s. So the congressional hearings heated up when the two most influential disc jockeys in the country took the stand. And that was Alan Freed and Dick Clark. Dick Clark was caught up in this? Yep. Wow. How did I not know that? Yeah. So they were both called to testify. They both denied ever accepting payola, but... It was Alan Freed who ended up taking the fall for DJs everywhere. So they think that he was probably singled out because he was just so abrasive. 
and he was also one of the big promoters of black musicians. So oh. they could have just used like him as the fall guy. Uh-huh. Um, he was... But it does pay to be nice. Yeah. To people. You know, if you're rude, they're going to come after you. <laughs> yeah, so he... I don't, I don't really know anything about him, but it, anyway, apparently he was abrasive. He smoked constantly. He spoke in jive, whereas Dick Clark was a squeaky <laughs> clean, handsome, and polite. Oh, yes. He was a good little boy. Mm-hmm. Good-looking little boy. Yeah. So once the, once these grill, the grillings started... Freed's friends and allies in broadcasting quickly distanced themselves from him. And he refused, on principle, to sign an affidavit saying that he had never accepted payola. He got fired from WABC. He was charged with 26 counts of commercial bribery. He was given a suspended jail sentence and fined. And then he died five years later, broke, and almost forgotten. Which oh is gosh. probably why we don't really know no, who he, he is. is. But was it was his, his assertion saying, I'm not signing this that I didn't take payola because everyone took payola and why should I go down for it? He just didn't sign it on principle because he didn't think that he should have to. Okay. Um, oh, so previous to the trial, Dick Clark had already divested himself from all of the incriminating connections that he had. Yes, so, he was smart. Yeah, he had a part ownership in seven indie labels six publishers, three record distributors, and two talent agencies. And he, like, basically just got rid of all that. So these DJs were taking bribes from the record company and then investing in the record companies that were giving them the bribes. Yeah. So very putting your tentacles in all of it. Oh, my goodness, that's funny. Um, so Dick Smart, Cla- yeah. but funny. And it's smart of him to dump it. Yeah, he, he was smart because he was only given a slap on the wrist by the committee chairman... Um, and the chairman also called him a fine young man. <laughs> um, Dick Clark even brought. A I have no. That was that was horrible. Dick Clark was a wonderful human being. Probably I don't know. Yeah, I mean one way or the other. Um, Dick Clark even brought a statistic, statistician. It's hard to say when my tongue's still numb. <laughs> Why is your tongue numb? From my, my wisdom teeth. Oh. Um, Dick Clark even brought a statistician with him to prove that Paola had not affected the sales of records of the records that he was affiliated with. In his testimony, he said, I have not done anything that I think I should be ashamed of or that is illegal or immoral. And I hope to eventually convince you of this. I believe in my heart I have never taken payola. Hmm. And at at another point in the hearing, one representative responded, you say you didn't get any payola, but you got an awful lot of royola. Royola. Like the royalties that he got from... Oh. From playing his own records. Yeah. From his own companies. From his own talent. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. If you're in the record industry, you're in, you're a DJ, that would seem like a natural investment. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to me. Um, Clark told Rolling Stone in 1989, the lesson he learned from the Paola trial was to protect your ass at all times. <laughs> That's funny. After Alan Freed went down in 1960, Congress amended the Federal Communications Act to outlaw under-the-table payments and require broadcasters to disclose if airplay for a song had been purchased. Paola became a misdemeanor with a penalty of up to $10,000 in fines and one year in prison. Wow. There have been instances of Paola even today, but with streaming platforms becoming so popular, the whole, like, 
scenario has changed. So Yeah, because people can listen to whatever they want. Yeah. Although I would think those people who program the playlists could probably program a song to come up more often, couldn't yeah. they? Yeah, it's called, that's exactly what it is. It's called, oh. it's called stream manipulation. So for a fee, um, individuals and companies can manipulate the streams of a song in artificial ways, distorting the truth about a song's performance, which would give it extra exposure and thus more revenue. So it's like the same thing, but digital. Um, so Rolling Stone reported, to the uninitiated people who work in streaming promotion, might as well speak another language. They praise save rates, which is a valuable sign of listener investment that occurs when a user hears a song and adds it to their personal library or playlist, and premium plays that come from paying subscribers and they're weighted more heavily in the charts than the free than those from free users. And I wondered how music made money now. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. But where does that money come from then? The people who are getting the free, I guess the advertisers on advertising. the sites. Yeah, advertising. Interesting. Um, let's see. Oh, and they all, like these people, this digital people involved in streaming also use terms like activate the algorithm. But despite all of this, it's basically just payola light. Yeah. It's payola-esque. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it light because it's probably just as much money exchanging hands just instead of record plays, it's yeah. make sure my song falls in the stream more. Basically, the only difference is there's no FCC regulation about it. So, And why is that? Because it's on the internet? Yeah. Oh, that'll come, though, I'm sure. I'm sure. But anyway, I looked at Performing Songwriter, The Golden Age of Rock, Vice.com, and The Washington Times. Interesting. Interesting. So I went... I did not know what to do for rock and roll. I went back and forth. I was going to do... Um, Jerry Lewis, but the Disgraceland guy did such a good job. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> so then it occurred to me, because um, there's so many rock and roll stars who've done interesting, fabulous things, but it occurred to me, instead of talking about a star, I would talk about a moment. Oh. Yes. So this is totally gonna give it away, but my sources are um, All That's Interesting, Woodstock Festival 1969. American History, Blog Woodstock, The Britannica, Woodstock, History.com, Woodstock Music Festival concludes. So, the Woodstock Festival kind of became the iconic moment for the free-loving 60s. So, the festival was called Woodstock, but it was actually held 43 miles from the town of Woodstock, New York. It was held on the farm of Max Yashkers. Um, it was a 600-acre dairy farm in Bethel. I am not hating this drink. 600-acre um, dairy farm in Bethel, New York. There's three straight days in August 1969. It was supposed to be two, but it stretched on to three. I mean, why not? 400 thousand people were there That's crazy yes insanity um they partied and played in the fields and the pastures it the festival itself became a hub for sex drugs and rock and roll it had left an indelible impression on the artists and the attendees and it's still prompting merchandise it's still talked about it you know this one three-day concert and festival is copied imitated talked about it's huge 
So the way it all started, these four young men wanted to do something to make money. They had been in the music scene for a while. It was John Roberts, Joel Roseman, Artie Cornfield, and Michael Lang. They all had a decent resume to do this. Um, Lang had organized the Miami Music Festival in 1968, and Cornfield was with Capitol Records. He was the youngest vice president ever, and Roberts and Roseman were young entrepreneurs in New York City. So they decided they were going to do this. So they formed a company called Woodstock Ventures based on the name of the city. So now they're like, okay, we know what we want to do. We got to get some talent. We got to get some people to sign up. So Creedence Clearwater Revival was the first group to sign on. <coughs> so now they have talent and they need a venue. So remember, this is like 68. So it's not rock and roll is kind yeah. of frowned upon. So the town of Woodstock turned me down flat. Nope. Not going to play here. Not doing it here. <laughs> so they went to Wallkill and they reserved the Howard Mills Industrial Park. They put down $10,000, $1968, to have this um, festival at the Howard Mills Industrial Park. However, the city of Wallkill decided they didn't want this. So they made it very, very difficult for them to do things. They passed laws including um, a portable toilet ban oh that's so interesting yes wallkill went all out to try and get this not to happen so that obviously made it impossible for people to um have a festival there so they kept looking kept looking and they it's a month until this thing is gonna take place and they have no venue oh wow a month that's pretty scary yes so they found this guy, Max Yasger, who he was a 49 year old dairy farmer. And he said, yeah, you can rent my property. Sure. <laughs> why not? I'll take $10,000. <laughs> yeah. So, um, he rented, they rented his fields and they kept the name Woodstock because they felt that it was very cash cash. It was good. They liked it. Um, the town of Woodstock was very associated with hippiness and Bob Dylan and other musicians were known to hang out there. So that's why they kept the name. Um, so now they've got a venue and a talent and they've got to figure out how they're going to do this. Because if you're going to have a music festival this big, obviously it was not supposed to be 400,000 people. But if you're going to have something this big, you need infrastructure, you need fences, you need security, you need regulation, you need food, um, medical, all this stuff. So they had sold a bunch of tickets and they realized they, they need, you know, fences to grab this off. They need concession stands. They need a pavilion for the performers to hang out at. Um, they kind of forgot about a lot of these things. I'm like, that seems expensive. <laughs> but yeah, they sort of forgot about a lot about these things. So they, um, but the main concern, the biggest thing was the fencing. So they, quote, you do everything you can to get the gates and the fences finished, but you have other priorities. So people are coming and you need to be able to feed them and take care of them and give them a show. So you prioritize. So they prioritize that, which is important. Yeah, they, that was all necessary. Over fencing. So you can imagine what's going to happen. Woodstock was intended to make a profit. They, they wanted to make money with this. They sold tickets in advance, but they quickly realized we cannot take tickets. People are just streaming in. Yeah, how can you not... It's basically just like, if you paid for a ticket, great, we got your money. If not, then 
come on in anyway. <laughs> yeah. Which is what they finally did. The show had not even started. It was still a day or so away. And they finally just threw up their hands and said, okay, it's free. Come on in. Yeah. <laughs> so they pre-sold 100,000 tickets. Um, and the festival was set to take place on August 15th through the 18th in 1969. But by August 13th, they already had 50,000 people camped out on the property. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That poor farmer. I know. <laughs> the final official tally was around 400,000 to a million people. They never got an official, official count. Um, this obviously left the boys nearly bankrupt. But one of them had the foresight to film things, and they made a documentary that was released in 1970 and became a smash hit and was nominated for an Academy Award. So they made money. Oh, they thank were fine. heavens. Yeah. yeah, they were fine. Um, rain, of course, happened that weekend. It turned the festival into just a sea of mud, but this kind of bonded the audience. This and the very large amount of marijuana and acid that yeah. was dropped. <laughs> Um, as the festival went on, some people actually had to be evacuated because floods came rushing through their campground, mm. like streams were overflowing and whatnot. I had heard about that. Two people actually died. Um, but you can imagine at, at a, in a cornfield or a field where there's 400,000 to a million people gathered for three days and a lot of drugs being passed around, two people dying is kind of... It's Amazing. really not that bad. No, not bad at all, at all. I would expect a lot more. Um, so people were really struck with it. They were like, the um, the lack of sanitation, food, and water were certainly an issue, but it was mostly a peaceful affair. Um, and they were really surprised by this, given what was happening at the time with the World. war. Yeah, the war and the counterculture against the war. Um, and one of the team, the people that died was one was a drug overdose and the other was accidentally run over by a tractor because mm. he was sleeping. So it's not like it wasn't violence that caused the deaths. So a quote, these people are really beautiful. This was the festival's chief medical officer, Dr. William Abrezzi. He said, there's been no violence whatsoever, which is remarkable for a crowd of this size. And again, they were, you know, taking drugs and saying, make love, not war. And so, you know, from that mantra and free willing let's just have fun culture there was a whole lot of babies born nine months after woodstock have you seen that um well it's a, two photos but there's a photo of a couple that met at woodstock and then later on they recreated the photo like like 40 years later or oh, something that's like that cute. yeah they were still together that's cute i did not see that i just saw it recently again i've seen uh -huh. it before but i'm I gonna have like, to look for that yeah this is reminiscent to me of a whiskey sour it is a lot. Well, it has a lot of the ingredients of a mm -hmm. whiskey sour. Oh. We'll have um, to make those next weekend. We'll make those next weekend. Um, <laughs> so the medical tent was mostly staffed by volunteers, and the most things that they had were um, feet injuries because people were not wearing shoes and food poisoning, just not a bunch of stuff at all. Um, the highways and the streets were jam-packed. People. I've seen, it might be from the documentary, but I've seen video of uh, the streets just like jammed up. Yeah. So it was so jammed up that people would just like, we're going to be late. Let's go. And they would just leave their car on the highway. Yeah. And just go to the concert. 
So I have a lot of quotes, and this one is from John Fogarty of Cleveland Crew Revival. He said this in 2009. It was big. You knew it was really, it was a really momentous and special thing. And I was nervous. The fact that freeways were all clogged for 50 miles around was like, wow, that's pretty unusual. We were taken by helicopter and dropped off at the Holiday Inn and allowed to sleep for a little bit. And there, and from there, we were taken by helicopter in the shaky World War II thing that I was also really nervous about. Only two of us at a time could fit in it. We arrived in daylight and saw all these people and it was like, oh my God. Once I was on the ground, I looked around and I was just as nervous the whole time that I was there. Because with half a million people there, there are no rules. Yeah, basically. Yeah. They mob could, rules. They could mob you at any time. Um, the organizers hired the California Hippie Commune Hog Farm to deal with the kitchen and the um, security. So the hog farm did this kitchen. They also had a daycare. And because you're bringing, clearly you're bringing your children. Clearly you're bringing your children. Well, people did bring their children. <laughs> and um, the hippie commune hog farm was taking care of them. I'm sure hog farm was probably pretty good at it. They're used to taking care of children. They are used to taking care of children. The leader's name was Wavy Gravy. Oh, I've heard of him. Yes, and he would spray seltzer water and throw pies at people that were doing things that they did not deem acceptable. <laughs> okay, that's funny. <laughs> yes, it is. So he said, we're the hippie police. <laughs> he announces he stepped off the plane four days before. So um, there were only 12 official law enforcement officers in charge of the entire crowd of half a million people. That's crazy. And they did fine. Everybody, you know. Luckily, only... everybody was very chill. Chill. Yes. I, I cannot imagine if you did this today that it would be the same. No. Which is sad. But, because it should be. Anyway, so um, not the ordinary police. What This is a quote from a regular police officer from the town. He says, notwithstanding their personality, their dress, and their ideas. <laughs> this is the head of the Monticello Village Police Department near Wallkill said, Notwithstanding their personality, their dress, and their ideals, they are most courteous, considerate, and a well-behaved group of kids that I have ever been in contact in my 24 years of police work. I wonder if he changed his mind about that group of people at all. I would hope so. But I just love just quote, you know, yeah. never mind their personality, their ideas, or how they dress. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, as music festivals do today, there was merch, there was t-shirts, there's still t-shirts. But as soon as there's merch, there's merch knockoffs, obviously. So, but again, our four entrepreneurs ended up making a lot of money with this film that debuted seven months later. All in all, 32 acts performed at Woodstock. Many of them were iconic. Um, some of them became iconic after mm -hmm. they had just started because, you know, they didn't, these kids didn't have a lot of money to stage, stage this thing. Um, the first day began on Friday, August 15th, around 5 o'clock. Richie Havens took the stage, and his quote, he described, I was supposed to be the fifth on stage, and no one in the whole festival went on when they were supposed to. I came in on one of those gas bubble, glass bubble helicopters and saw Tim Hardeen under the stage sort of playing by himself. And I knew that he wasn't going on first, but I didn't want to either, but I had the least number of instruments, so I thought... God, three hours late, they're going to throw beer cans at me. They're going to kill me. Fortunately, the reaction was, thank God someone's finally going yeah. to do something. <laughs> he probably, like, basically saved the whole thing right yes. there. 
Um, so he says, I was supposed to sing for 40 minutes, which I did. And I walked off the stage and people were great. And then the organizers, Richie said, four more songs. So I went back on and they were still clapping and I did four more songs and I went off again and I heard Richie say, four more songs? So I went back on and I did six and two hours and 45 minutes later, I had sung every song I knew. I was gonna say like, did he have that many songs? (laughs) So his two hour set was followed by the Indian spiritual master. Ravi (sighs) Shankar? No. Oh. Um, Satchid did Ananada Sarwati. Okay. Who performed an unscheduled blessing of the crowd. Well, that's good. Uh Uh-huh. And then Sweetwater, Birch, Summer, Tim Hardeen, Ravi Shankar. Ravi Shankar. That's what I just, I'm like, because I knew he was there. Yeah. And Arlo Guthrie came on. Joan Baez, who was six months pregnant, went on. She was the last act of that first night. Um, The venerated singer, folk singer, finished her set around 2 a.m. on August 16th. It is pouring down rain. And she's up there six months pregnant singing. Yeah. Yeah. Could not do that today because you'd be electrocuted probably. But it was a once in a lifetime thing for me. Playing on a free stage was a riot. Whoever was officially taking names and putting people on in order didn't recognize me. I was just one in the lineup. I think I just gave my name as Joan and I went out on the stage and I'm not sure what I sang, but I remember this guy at the top of the hill in the back with no clothes on and flowers in his hair and a long beard. He started to dance through the crowd towards the stage. So I cut one of the songs short, bowed politely to him and left (laughs) before he got up there with me. That's hilarious. So um, that was the first day. The second day, same thing, rain, mud, blah, blah, blah. Carlos Santana says, it was like witnessing an ocean of hair, teeth, eyes, and hands. If you closed your eyes, you could forget the impact of seeing a moving ocean of flesh. Then you could just feel the sound, which had a different kind of reverberation when it bounced off the people and came back to you. I remember seeing Jerry Garcia as soon as we landed. He was already playing his guitar on the hill with this beautiful, blissful smile on his face. So just after noon on Saturday, um, Quill, Country Joe McDonald, Santana, John Sebastian, Keith Hardly Band, The Incredible String Band, Canned Heat, Mountain, The Grateful Dead, Creed and Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, The Cosmic Blues Band, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, and Jefferson Airplane played. Oh, that's it? That's it on Saturday. <laughs> this is just, just like every Saturday afternoon. Every popular music <laughs> group. Some of them were not popular True. yet. True. Some of them were not popular yes. Santana had just started. So this is a quote from, and of course my thing just went down. Um, Credence, another quote from Credence. We left Los Angeles and flew all night to get to Woodstock. We heard there were 200,000 people already there, which was amazing. By the time we got there, everything had changed. It was no longer 200,000. It was as out of control as we could t- out of control as far as we could tell. We didn't know what to expect when we went there in a little helicopter sort of hanging out on the pontoon of the helicopter. And backstage, we were having a totally different experience in the audience. There was a lot of creature comforts. There was friends and food. There was a lot of good smoke, booze, and whatever you wanted. We weren't experiencing the same environment that the rest of the people were. Then we got on stage and we didn't know there were 500,000 people there. It was pitch black. After the first few songs, we still weren't sure if there was anyone there. It was three in the morning and it was getting pretty quiet. People had had a fairly long day. And then some guy way out the hell out there yells, we're with y'all. And then we were like, okay, well, that guy's <laughs> the concert. Who's the concerts for? So we played on. 
The next day we played for 5,000 people somewhere and it started to dawn on us that we, what we'd just been at and we'd probably never see anything like that again. Um, day two ended at 9.45 on Sunday, August 17th, a little more than four hours before Joe Crocker kicked off day three. I mean, you got to start it right back up, right? Yes. No, not, okay. I skipped two letters in that sentence. I'm going to say that sentence again. Day two ended at 9.45 a.m. That's what I assumed. <laughs> okay. On Sunday, August 17th. And then three hours later, or two hours, four hours later, they kicked it off again. So Joe Crocker was followed by Country Joe and the Country Joe and the Fish. Ten years after the band Johnny Winter, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Paul Butterfield, Blues Band, Sean Na Na, Jimi Hendrix, you know, just another few bands that you probably never heard of. The huge. The huge. The those who attended had far more stories. The final act was Jimmy Jimi Hendrix. He was set. His set was delayed due to rain. He made it on stage and closed the iconic festival, which again was supposed to be three days, at 9 a.m. on Monday morning. Yeah. There's hardly anybody left. There's like 30,000 people left, which is a massive amount of people. But when there had been half a million, 30,000 is no one. And this is where he did the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. At the end, that was his last I'm sure everybody's heard. Yes. It's amazing. So the festival that had only been scheduled to last till Sunday night, many people had to get up and get back to their lives, but leaving was just as difficult as getting there. And they had all the same traffic problems and the commute, (laughs) the highways and roads were clogged in a matter of minutes. Um, For the four organizers, the event was far from over. They had a massive cleanup. It took several days cost tens of thousands of dollars so they rented the farm for 10 grand and now they're spending more than that to clean it up yeah plus all the infrastructure that they had to build yeah so it required bulldozers and however this was a historically and culturally massive three-day pinnacle of the 60s do you think that they knew that it how significant it was as it was happening i don't know because it kind of sounds like some of the artists maybe did, but... I think they got that impression once they got there. Yeah. As it was happening, maybe, before it was happening. I don't think so. No. I think these four kids just wanted to make some money. Yeah, I don't think before, definitely, no. no. But, so the farmer, I've got one last thing. <clears throat> so, the farmer and his wife, Miriam, said, you've proven something to the world, he told the audience on the last day. So, he got up and spoke to everybody. He says, there's half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children who are older than you, and... There's a half a million young people can get together, have three days of fun and music, and have nothing but fun and music. And God bless you for it. Aww. I know. So he, I think he had an idea too what it was, what it was that they did, just because of how it had turned out. You know, it turned out this massive thing with no bloodshed, with no violence, just peace and love, and everybody was impressed by that hippies could do that. I don't think they thought they could. Yeah. You know, so... That's Woodstock. That's cool. Yeah. I, I was really excited that I thought of that. No, um, I I was taken by surprise that you did that because I was thinking you'd probably choose a person or like, you know, something. And I'm like, oh, what could it be? I'm like, I don't know, don't know. Yeah. Because there's so many options. There's so many options. Elvis was an option. The Beatles were an yeah. option. There's a million options. We should find more rock and roll dr- drinks. So there's, I'm sure there's more. plenty there's of rock and roll There's probably plenty of the, the sweet little guy at my coffee shop this morning said, or girl said, um, do you ever run out of cocktails? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so speaking of running out of cocktails, send us suggestions that we want to hear. We want to do suggestions from you guys. We haven't gotten any in a while, so send us some. Crime and time OTR at gmail.com. Yep. And visit our Patreon. 
Patreon slash Crime and Time OTR. Yeah, buy us a drink. drink. But like and review us if you like us, or review us if you don't, or whatever. Well, if you don't like us, then maybe just stop listening to us. But if you do like us, review us. (laughs) But everybody says that it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Oh, okay. Then if you don't like us, review us too. Review us anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I'm no expert on podcasting not an expert on podcasting or rock and roll but i think after telling people even if they don't like us to review us i might be drunk might be (laughs) as always you can contact us on facebook at crime and time otr on instagram we are crime and time otr on twitter we're at crime and time otr and our email is crime and time otr at gmail.com email is where you want to where you will want to send us cocktail suggestions things you want to learn about Yeah. yeah Or just say hi. Or just say hi. And we also have a new Patreon page if you want to buy us a drink. Buy us a drink. So that is? Patreon.com slash Crime and Time OTR. And we're going to be offering some perks for our patrons. Absolutely. I'm excited. See you there. Thank you for listening.